Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I am beyond excited for today's guest because this is the second time he's been on the show, and for a long time, he was our most listened to show ever. Uh, Scott Galloway, welcome. Uh, thanks, Nick. And more importantly, who beat me? Must be someone much younger and much more handsome. Well, so so it was it was uh, for a long time your show uh, on uh, the big five or four, or however you wanted to refer to them back then, was uh, was our number one listen to show. And then um, it was someone much more handsome came along and did a podcast about Elizabeth yeah. Holmes, uh, i.e., me, and uh, and kind of blew you out of the park. <laughs> so we're going to see if you can now beat me. With this podcast, I will say I was at a dinner the other night, and I mentioned and I mentioned at a podcast, uh, someone was asking me, you know, what it was about, and they were like, "Do you know Scott Galloway?" And you have a lot of fans, what a thrill, so, yeah, <laughs> what a thrill for you, so exciting. All right, Scott, good, let us good. let's jump yes. into it. Um, so we're yeah. going to talk about a lot of stuff today, and you are an expert on a lot of stuff. Uh, but I want to begin with your new book. Uh, the yeah. Algebra of Happiness notes on the pursuit of success, love, and meaning. And I want to, I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but you're kind of a little bit of a grumpy guy sometimes, you know, you've, you've got a little recalcitrant uh, personality, <laughs> yeah. which I love. Uh, how did you end up writing a book on uh, success, love, and meaning? Yeah, I, I'm grumpy, Nick. But I'm grumpy, but I hate my life less and less every day. So listen, <laughs> uh, an, an angry, depressed professor writing a book on happiness, I, I understand the contradiction there. So this has been, uh, one, it, it's a journey of personal discovery. I struggle uh, with anger and depression, and I woke up a few years ago and realized that my blessings didn't foot to my mood. My sister, who I speak to every Sunday night, summarized it perfectly when she stopped me mid-sentence one Sunday and said, why are you so pissed off? You have less reason and justification to be angry than anybody I know. And I decided that I would start doing some research into trying to take stock of your blessings and make your mood, create an arc of satisfaction that sort of follows you everywhere. In addition, my process for writing books is I take my most popular course or class, I turn it into a video. If the video gets views, I write a book. So my second most popular session is on the four, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Did a video, million views, boom, book. But my most popular class is the last class, and it's called The Algebra of Happiness, where I share what I believe are a series of equations that are not the answer, but sort of best practices around how to take stock of your blessings and have your mood and satisfaction foot to your blessings. Uh, that's a very popular class. Did a video, got two million views, and here we are with a book. So is there is there like a you know your your book has a lot of amazing little graphs and so on and, and anecdotes and so on but for the listeners that don't know anything about this is there is there an a, an algebra for happiness it's or is it different for each person is how do you figure it out i mean how do you get there one thing is it seems like us as humans our life is to be constantly not satisfied and seeking that which yeah. is what propels us forward is that incorrect no, it's 100%. We have a competitiveness gene, which is super important because it advances the species. And the reason why your kids will be taller and my kids will be less prone to infection is that we hold ourselves to a high, higher standard. And that is we anchor off the most successful people we know across different dimensions and create that as a benchmark. And it's got some very positives or you know, some positive upside, but it's also got some negatives. And that is we have a tendency to be disappointed when a fragrance isn't named after us or it's you know evident we're not going to become a senator. So absolutely that's that's you know uh, it's a double-edged sword. Now in terms of a an equation it, the title's misleading because I don't think there is any one silver bullet. What I do think uh, is that if you look at the research there are a series of what I'd call best and worst practices and that is on average the people to do the following things and make them following investments and relationships and then their own activities and the following decisions tend to, on average, feel more satisfied at the end of their lives. And the pendulum that swings up and down, as it does for all of us, swings on a higher plane for some people. And there are also worse practices where, on average, this cohort is unhappier. And so I take them through what I would call the series of best practices that I try to distill down to a series of equations. But I, I agree with you, Nick. I don't think there is any silver bullet here. Do you think there, you know, one thing I've noticed is, and you, you probably are fully aware of this 
1000% too, but that the, I, the, the people who I have written about over the years and interacted with who on the outside are, seem like the most successful, the, the movie exec who created the huge movie franchise, the billionaire who sold a startup to Facebook or created Facebook or any of those mm-hmm. things, they often seem like the most miserable of all of the people I interact with. Do, do you think that there is a correlation with success equals unhappiness? So what the research shows, and I'll, I'll loosely equate success to money, uh, and that is that there is a correlation actually between money and happiness. Middle-class cohorts are happier than poor people, and the affluent are generally a little bit happier than the middle class. But that's the bad news. The good news is that it tops out, and that is once you get to a point where you can have decent housing, education for your kids, absorb an economic shock so you're not living in a fear, you know, with anxiety and fear of something happening to you, can take nice vacations, buy nice, you know, some nice things, that it levels out. Now, it's a myth that billionaires are less happy. They're just not any happier than millionaires. Money does, money and happiness, a correlation is strong and then it tops out. Now, in most U.S. cities, that's call it a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a year in household income. In Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, it's probably closer to seven or eight hundred thousand dollars a year. So a lot of it is around your expectations and the environment you're in. But happiness does top out at a certain level, and that's why I think it's important that people realize money. And the research shows it here: money is the ink in your pen, and then it can write different stories. It can make some stories burn brighter. Money is a wonderful thing, but it isn't your story. And one of the points of discipline you need is that I think it's important in a capitalist society that you bust a move to economic security. I do think economics are are correlated, and there's research here, to happiness. But once you get to a point of economic security and you have that reasonable sense of self of economically, what is your story? What are the things that give you satisfaction? And there is one hack. You asked me if there was a secret. There generally is kind of one key principle that comes back in the majority of the literature. And simply put, It's the number and depth of your relationships. That is kind of the one thing that across all the different research on happiness, and there's a ton of wonderful research, comes back as sort of the the best practice, if you will. So talk us through some of that research. I know this is a huge part of the book where you, you you talk about the fact that people with relationships are happier and live longer and all these different things. Um, Talk us through some of the stuff that you discovered while you were reporting this. So the largest study on happiness done to date uh, is the Harvard Grant study where they took 400 men age 19, and I think it was 1929, and it gives you some insight into what we were concerned about in the 20s. We decided just to track the happiness of men, not women. But anyways, they <laughs> tracked them over 80 years until the last one died. You know, who cares about women's happiness, right? Yeah, so know, right? Yeah. They, yeah, said, uh, they, which comes as no surprise to any woman. But they, they tracked these 400 individuals and measured everything from their food intake, their job, their income, their relationships, uh, the, and then queried them regularly on their levels of satisfaction and happiness. This study outlasted four principal scientists because the scientists kept dying. And finally, they aggregated all of um, the data set, largest data set ever collected on happiness. Uh, and what did they find? Simply put, um, they found that uh, the depth and number of meaningful relationships, and that is at work, do you feel respected and admired? And just as importantly, do you respect and admire other people? With amongst your friends, do you receive a sense of joy and camaraderie? And do they know that they get, or do you know they get joy and camaraderie from you? And finally, at home, do you feel an intense level of love and support? And and just as importantly, do you know that they receive an intense level of love and support from you? And the Largest study of its kind on happiness has the best opening sentence of any academic study. And granted, this might be a low bar, but it's this wonderful opening sentence of a 440-page report, and it says, happiness is love, full stop. So that sounds easy, but it's not easy. You have to invest in these relationships. You have to make trade-offs. I think this is especially important and difficult for men. I don't know about you, but in my 20s and 30s, I was very focused on my career, and it came at a huge cost in terms of my relationships. And I find as I'm older, I'm trying to catch up and reconnect with people. So it's it's not, it sounds passe, it sounds easy, it's not. Well, I think the thing that a lot of people I know, men and women, struggle with, my wife and I talk about this all the time, is we we find reward from our creative pursuits, but we live in a world where to to achieve those creative pursuits you have you are up against a million obstacles and 
in a, you have to be in a specific place if you're trying to write screenplays. You have to be in Hollywood if you're trying to be a journalist. You have to be in New York or DC. There's all these things that you have to do, and you kind of create these stepping stones that you have to climb, or this ladder that you have to climb. Um, and so you become economically tied to the thing that you're trying to solve, and it affects the relationships, even though you're doing these things in the in the end for the relationships. It's how do you kind of What's your advice to people about how to find that balance? Because it seems like I I felt like one you know the same at the same time. It's ironic because one company that you and I both don't like very much, Facebook, you know, was originally created to create quote unquote find those connections and those relationships uh, with other humans. And and what it's ended up doing is it's blurred the line between what is a nine to five job and what is a twenty four hour job where you're constantly at work and you're constantly not at work and so on. And, and I'm curious what your advice is about how you tell people to go about finding the balance between these relationships, which are so important for us and the work that is also equally important. Yeah. So there's a lot there. So there's balance and then there are the notion of balance and then there's um, how you manage that balance in the context of a relationship. So with respect to balance, now, granted, I have a bias here, and that is the cohort I'm speaking to and to a certain extent writing to is young people coming out of graduate school. And I do, I survey them and say, where do you expect to be in 10 years in terms of your income? And 95% of them, Nick, don't expect to be in the top 10%. They expect to be in the top 1%. Because it's easy in New York and Los Angeles to think, oh, 100 or 200 grand is just an average living. It's not an ex- it's an extraordinary living by most standards. But if you want to mm-hmm. continue to howl in the money and the success storm in LA and New York and San Francisco, that's barely even middle class. So the kids who expect to be in the 1%, I think you have to have an open and honest conversation with yourself. And that is, I believe that balance is a myth. That at least in your 20s and 30s, if you want to achieve that level of success and economic security, I'm not saying you have to be miserable. But the people I know that are successful and didn't, didn't have the good, you know, the good judgment to inherit money pretty much gave up their 20s and 30s for not much else other than work. And I also want to acknowledge that's not the only route to happiness. A lot of people decide they're going to get out of the money storm and they move somewhere else and they lead a more balanced life from a very early position. But if you want to be successful but I, by what I would call Western and capitalist standards – you know, it, it, you may know somebody who's good looking in great shape, has a great relationship, money just falls into their lap, they donate time at the ASPCA and have a food blog. Assume you are not that person because the, the reality is, and it leads to another terrible piece of advice, Nick, and that is at NYU Stern, we invite two types of speakers to speak to the kids. We have two or three a week. And it's either very interesting people or billionaires. We've decided the billionaires just can opine on anything because they have a billion dollars or more. And they always end with what I think is some of the worst and most dangerous advice to young people. And that is they tell them to follow their passion. And my sense is that that's dangerous advice because when work gets hard as it inevitably does and you think, oh, I don't like it. It must not be my passion. No, that's work. I think a young person's job is to find something they're good at and then invest the requisite grit, frustration, breaking through obstacles, injustice that you will face in the corporate world, and then become great at it. And the accoutrements of being great at almost anything, economic security, the respect of your, the respect of your colleagues, uh, self-worth, will make you passionate about whatever it is. So Jay-Z followed his passion and became a billionaire. Assume you are not Jay-Z and find something you are good at and commit to becoming great at it. Now, The notion of your relationship, you talked about your wife, Um, the most important decision in terms of your happiness you will make your entire life is not where you live, it's not the career you're going to, the most important decision you'll make in terms of your happiness is who you decide to partner with in life. And people who are middle class or lower income but have a real partner in their life, their life just burns brighter. And I know a lot of people who are exceptionally successful by most exterior standards and love their spouse, but don't feel as if they have a real partnership with their spouse. They don't, they're not really synced up. And I don't think they are nearly as happy as the folks who aren't, at least from an exogenous standpoint, uh, more successful. So there's an algorithm for basic algorithm for successful relationships. The first is there's sort of three legs of the school is sex and affection. Uh, that stuff kind of, kind of 
signals your relationship is singular and says, I choose you and it's important. The second is values. Religion, how close are you going to live to your in-laws? Where do you expect to live? The role of politics in your life, etc. And then finally, and the thing that young people don't ask enough, and it's the leading cause of divorce and the leading cause of acrimony. Any guesses, Nick? Money. 100% money. Hmm. Who's going to make the money? What economic weight class... What economic weight class do you expect to be in and what trade-offs will be required? What is your approach to spending money? People think infidelity is the number one source of divorce. It's not. It's money. So those kind of three things are the legs of the stool of the most important decision, and that's who you decide to partner with for the rest of your life. When it comes to the relationship you you have, I'm just going to go back to the work thing for one second and then come back to the to the spouse. You mentioned that, you know, you talk about the, the the choice that you used to make, whatever you decide to do vocationally and challenging yourself and being the best you can be at that thing and so on. What percentage of that is kind of a modern day construct? For example, I mean, if we, do, we were to go back, I don't know how many years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, who knows, where the main goal was to put food on the table and not to get eaten by a lion. Um we weren't thinking about the novel we were going to write or the the startup we were going to build or you know the food blog we were going to create we were thinking about this these other things and now that we can go to the supermarket and buy a loaf of bread and a can of tuna and uh, sausages we kind of have created this new contracts where where work is so important to who we are it, it, do you think that there's that, that it's justified or is there a world in which you could imagine where maybe with automation or something like that, where we could as a society be like, hey, maybe maybe it's not as important if I have a best-selling book, but if I sit and paint a picture of the bird on the tree and show it to my family and that's it. Is there a world where we get back to that or is that not does that not make sense for society? Wow, that's a complicated question. I, I think the competitiveness gene, and I think in a capitalist society where are so much of the rewards and respect, so it, it, it sort of breaks down by gender. Women are expected to be professionally successful. They're also expected to be good-looking. They're expected to be nice, good mothers, pleasant to be around. They're essentially expected to be outstanding on several dimensions. Guys are just expected to be one thing, successful professionally. If you're successful professionally as a guy, you're all set. You can have you have a greater selection of mates, you're respected. That's it's pretty much one-dimensional for guys. That's good and that's bad. Whereas women are sort of tasked with being this multi-dimensional wonder woman. I don't think we ever get to a point and this goes a little bit Jeff Bezos talks about universal guaranteed income saying that with automation and it's frightening to think probably the brightest businessman in the world sees a world where there's not enough jobs. But we are generally happiest when, we're, when we feel as if we're productive. We're generally happiest when we're surrounded by other people in motion. And the way we've sort of replaced hunting and gathering is with work. And when we're at work and we feel we have purpose, when we're mentally engaged, when we feel as if we're all pulling in, in a direction and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, a lot of people, it's probably more, you know, uh, this sounds sexist, but I think especially among American men, I get my identity from work. I, being being a father, be, you know, being a responsible head of household is something I'm immensely proud of, and I hope that's what they write on my tombstone. But my daily self-worth and my identity, and this might be a shortcoming, is indicated by my professional success. So the idea of universal guaranteed income or ever getting to a future where we could just hang out and watch Netflix and do, you know, and think big thoughts and maybe pursue our passions. I can understand how that appeals to a small segment of society, but I think for the most part, we would be unhappy. When you think about the American brand, we're a generous, freedom-loving people, but we also work. That's what we do. We work harder than almost anyone in the world. I think we're ambitious. I think that's part of that immigrant gene that is endemic in our society. So I don't know if we ever get there, nor do I think we ever want to get there. You know, I think Americans and I think, I think our culture, I, I think we work. Well, it's interesting. So my wife and I, were, we, we've been kind of having this conversation about, um, excuse me if this becomes a therapy session now, uh, but thank you in advance. I'll wire the money. Um, we've been having this conversation. You know, we have a huge overhead. We live in LA. We have kids in school, all these things. And and we were saying, we were just joking around this morning. We were driving home after dropping our kid off at, at school. And, and we were like, if you had a year to live, like, what would you do differently? And our answer was, 
was the thing that you said in the beginning, like probably move somewhere where the, where our overhead is nothing, sit by the, sit in the woods with our family and, and write a novel. And like, and I, yep. and I, I have a hard time kind of understanding why it is that we, we, most people would answer that question that way. They would not say, oh, I would go and try to build the next Uber in the next year, or I would finish this marketing plan yeah. I have to do. And right. I don't understand how it is that we are in a place I'd where- I'd vest my options. One more year of options vesting. That's what I do. Yeah, I'd yeah. vest more options. Nobody says <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. But, but it seems like if, you were to, if we would ask every single person listening to this podcast th- that question, what would you do if you had a year left to live? Or if you had two weeks or whatever it is, it would not be the thing, I would say 99% of them would not be the thing, the answer that, uh, um, that they're doing what they're doing right now. And I don't understand why it is that happiness has to be, why we can't, why that can't be the way we're, we're happy. I understand all the studies you're talking about with, with connections and relationships. And I think that the answer to that question of if you have an alert year to live would be that I would go and spend the time with the people I love. If you had an hour to live, that would be what you would do probably. Um, uh, and and I and I guess it's like hard for me to understand why we as a society don't do more of that and we we get we end up on this treadmill that we can't get off and it seems like the correlation between the treadmill and you know and our competitive gene it's like it, the competitive gene just wins out every time yeah but but here's the bottom line you, you don't have a year to live you probably have 50 years to live and the the at my work I'm, I I work for a, uh, at least until Friday for a very large company and one day we showed up and we had those motivational calendars on our desk with sayings which I think qualifies as employee abuse but one of those things was what would you do if today was your last day and it goes again back to this notion well first off the def- one of my equations the definition of rich rich is passive income that's greater than your burn so my father and his wife between their social security payments and my dad's pension from the Royal Navy where he admirably served off the Scottish coast as a, as a, as a frogman, he gets $48,000 a year, him and his wife, in passive income. They spend 40000 I mean, these are people who take coupons to the Olive Garden and then stuff food in their, you know, in their purse and in their bag. I mean, they just don't. They, they throw nickels around like they're manhole covers. They're rich, though, because they spend less than their passive income. I have several friends in New York kind of howling in the money storm that make, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, uh, you know, one to five million dollars a year in hedge funds or working for investment banks, and between their ex-wife, their child support, their alimony, their house in the Hamptons, and their master of the universe lifestyle, they spend all of it, and they are poor. And I can tell you, a lot of these guys sit up at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering what happens if and when the music stops. So, it's the money in your pen, like it's or it's the ink in your pen, money. But a guy like you. You're young. I'm going to kind of glom all over you right now. You're very successful, and you have a lot more to do. And when you achieve those things, you will you will also reward you and your family with a level of balance that'll be extraordinary. Such that if you want to go, you know, hang out and and touch and do crystal therapy and write the next great American novel in in New Mexico, you'll be. How able did you to know I that. wanted to do crystal therapy? How did you know? Did you? There did you I go. Tell you? Who doesn't, Nick? Who doesn't? <laughs> I do have. Who doesn't? Know, I do. I was going to say, I was going to say, I was going to say touch Indians. And then someone tweeted at me that that's a hate crime. Uh, So anyways, look, you, let's be honest. You don't have a year to live. You and your wife are both young people are exceptionally successful. I think the key though, is that once you get to a certain point, recognizing, okay, if I'm financially secure and I've, I've achieved a certain level of success, does more success and recognition make me happy? I, I, I love recognition. That's why I'm atti- addicted to Twitter. I love affirmation. I just need it. I want it. I get a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of it. And, but the type of affirmation and what gives me affirmation is changing as I get older. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What you have to decide as it relates to the where you live is what I call howling in the money storm. And at some point, when you get to that economic security, say, well, the point of economic security is children focus on their top line income, adults focus on their burn. You also got to manage your burn and that is at what point are we going to either move to a different place and lower our burn or do we have enough invested such that the passive income is greater than our burn. But yeah, it's very easy in the city and the industry you and I are both in to wake up at 50 or 60, not have the economic security we wanted, having made even though we made a ton of money, not have the relationships we want, not have the relationships with our family and our children that we want. 
So it takes a certain amount of discipline to ensure, yeah, get on the wheel. I, I think it's important to go hard at something. I mean, really, really fucking hard. I, I, I don't think the world is ours for the taking. I think in America, the world is ours for the trying. Try really damn hard. But at some point, recognize this is all the means. It's not the ends. Be successful. Be economically secure. But the ends are these deep, meaningful relationships and the opportunity to pursue things that take you beyond and outside of yourself. The discipline is knowing when to get off the wheel. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Robinhood is an investment app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all completely commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level whatsoever. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place trades in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stocks in collections such as the 100 most popular, which is my favorite. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Inside the Hive a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. All you need to do is sign up at Bilton.Robinhood.com. That's B-I-L-T-O-N.Robinhood.com. Get your free stock of Apple, Ford, or Sprint at Bilton.Robinhood.com. All right, so before we get to uh, ragging on tech startups, which is my favorite thing to do with you probably ever, uh, one last question about the book. What was the, was there like an eye-opening moment for you when you were writing it um, where you you had approached this this philosophy and kind of looked at it and they said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into this and figure this out? Was there a moment that was kind of like an aha moment? It all sort of leads to the one place and it's the obvious stuff, but you really need to let it resonate. I was so talking about that success storm, the, the only real accolade I've ever wanted in my life is at NYU Stern, they have an award, and it's every year the students pick the best teacher. And I've been there 17 years. I'm good at what I do. I desperately want this award. <laughs> I mean, desperately. And every year I'm nominated. Well, not every year. Most of the years I'm nominated. They nominate five people. And every year it goes to this guy, Aswat the Motoran, who's like the Jesus Christ of teaching. And I just never get it. I haven't gotten it in 17 years. And I feel like my peak, if you will, I'm like Fernando Valenzuela on the back end of his career. I just, my arms thrown out. I just feel like that window is closed for me. And it really dis disappoints me thinking of therapy. But anyways, this semester I was asked to give the last lecture. When the kids graduate, they pick one professor to come in and do the last lecture. And I did my thing on happiness. And they said, you know, we're MBA students. We always want to hack. What is the one piece of advice you would give us? And I really thought about this. And the research all kind of adds up to the same thing. And that is we as humans, everything mimics biology and all biology kind of mimics astrophysics, which is really where the base of, in the beginning and the answer of, uh, you know, the answers and the unknowns of everything. And the universe wants to prosper. When a sun dies, it, there, it sets off a process a series of, of you know, chemical reactions such that a new sun will reemerge stronger, brighter, and, and more powerful. And in order for the universe to prosper, it creates a series of incentives. So food is great. We love eating food. Sex is a ton of fun. All the things that are important to the universe, the, the universe creates incentives to try and motivate that type of behavior. The most important thing to the success of the species, and if you think our species is important to the success of the universe, although a lot of people would argue it's probably inversely correlated at this point, but the universe creates the ultimate incentive, and that is the most important person in the world, the most important activity in the world, is caregiving. And that is if we woke up tomorrow and decided that we didn't have an irrational passion for infants and our own children, the species would come to a quick end because no one would put up with kids. Kids ruin everything. Kids are awful. Babies are even worse. But we have this irrational, <laughs> intense passion for them that is built into us because the incentives are there. Because without that, the world would come, at least our species could come to an end. So when you're building housing 
or or when you're on stair you're on your you know stairmaster at SoulCycle, you fool the species in the universe into thinking you're building housing or hunting prey, and it lets you stick around a little bit longer. When you do a crossword puzzle, or you're engaged at work mentally, you fool you fool the species in the universe into believing that you're making important decisions for the clan or your cohort, and it decides to let you stick around a little bit longer. But the people that are happiest, the people who win, the people who get to live to be a hundred faster or more likely than anyone else are the people who go all in on relationships. And that is the majority of us have three types of love we engage in. We have the love we take as children. That's unrequited love from others. There's transactional love, which is the majority of love that people in our age group are engaged in, and that is we're getting something back. We're getting love. We're getting intimacy. We're getting economic security. We're getting partnership. And then the third type of love that some but not all of us get to is complete love, and that is we go all in and to become caregivers for someone else's well-being. The people who can get to that point of emotional, psychological, and financial security to be able to do that are generally the most content because the universe wants them to prosper. So if you want that sort of reward, that universal reward, you want your blink to still be a blink on the, you know, the cosmic universe, but you want your blink to matter, get to a point where you can go all in and completely love others. All right. Well, that is that That's is my good. Oprah moment, Nick. That's you your get Oprah a moment. car. You get a car. <laughs> I don't oh, want a gosh. car. I want happiness. I'm just kidding. It sounds so righteous. Um, um, all right. Well, the book uh, is is amazing. You should definitely pick it up. Uh, the Altar of Happiness Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. Uh, Scott, thank you for that. So let's jump Thanks, to man. ragging on tech companies. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. There's, there's Facebook. Yeah. There's Uber. There's... Yeah. Elon Musk. Let's let's start with yeah. let's start with Facebook because they yeah. seem to be the uh, the weekly uh, uh, POS as they call them in the industry. So um, uh, Facebook is once again kind of doing whatever the hell it wants. Uh, right now, you've got Sheryl Sandberg running around town on an apology tour, even though she's not apologizing. She's you know, meeting with the media all over the place and and having conversations yeah. about how uh, they did nothing wrong and uh, this is just them learning and growing and the price of business and would you rather have China or them? And at the same time, you've got a few shareholders that are trying to push for Zuckerberg to to leave. You've got, this place just feels like, I mean, when we spoke about them a year ago, you kind of predicted all the stuff that was going to happen. It feels like a complete and utter shit show over there. And yet, yeah. everyone is calling for the company to be broken up. Do you think that's going to happen? So, okay. So, I think in 20 years, in 30 years, we'll look back and have trouble finding people that have done more damage to our world while making more money than um, Mark, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Shell Sandberg. I think they are literally lipstick on cancer on cancer. And... Uh, Facebook has become the Donald Trump of digital, whereas everything becomes so more and more outrageous that every dumpster fire almost begins to blind us from the mushroom clouds around a link between social media and teen depression. We have an emerging mental health care crisis, as written by my colleague Jonathan Haidt, where we have admittance to emergency rooms of self-harm and self-cutting among teenage girls has exploded because we not only have fear of missing out now, a uh, young girl sees a party she wasn't invited to play out uh, in her room uh, real time. We have an organization that's been weaponized by foreign governments yet refuses to make the requisite investments to ensure it won't happen. If, if Vanity Fair, if we could reverse Vanity Fair's activities to depressing teens or to compromising our elections, Vanity Fair would be put out of business. But we have this very strange gestalt where unfortunately, these companies have, may have become more powerful than government and a key step to tyranny. And there's another great book by a Columbia professor, Tim Wu. If you look back through history, when tyranny has really reigned, a key step to that tyranny is when government was no longer a countervailing force to private power, but a co-conspirator. And that's what it feels like here. When the FTC fines Facebook for blatantly violating, blatantly violating its consent decrees around privacy, when it finds them 3 to $5 billion or the equivalent of seven days of revenue or seven weeks of cash flow, they've basically emboldened Facebook and said the smart thing for Facebook to do is to continue 
this unfettered activity showing no regard for the Commonwealth and showing absolutely no regard for people's well-being. The most recent example was their spokesperson, another individual who's been asked to sacrifice their reputation for millions and willingly enters into this contract, who went on, I think it was uh, Anderson Cooper, and said, we're not in the social media business, we're not in the news business, we're in the social media business. 40% of Americans are getting their news from, from Facebook right now and refuse to take down that video, that doctored video of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this is no, an that organization. Was just unbelievable. It, uh, but, but we. So, well, usage has definitely fallen. You know, you've seen a few million people who have left the service, which is not that much. You know, there was a study that I read this week about um, uh, usage fell by three minutes on average per user on Facebook last year and expect it to fall again by another couple of minutes. But people are still using it 30 or so minutes a day. It, at what point, I mean, I don't use it. I don't know anyone that does, but I do know that in the from when you look at the statistics and so on, there's a lot of people in the Midwest and so on, and and even on the coast that do. Is there a point? Do you think will it be if if the Democrats win in the next election or something like that? Do you think that there's a point where something will actually change? So first off, let's talk about the business. The core platform is flatlined and maybe declining a little bit, but Instagram specifically Instagram Stories, is probably the most powerful marketing platform in the world right now, maybe with the exception of Amazon Media Group, and WhatsApp continues to grow at incredible clip. So Facebook Inc. has never been stronger. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, stocks, I think, at about 183. I predicted earlier this year it was going to be at 250. If you didn't know what was going on with Facebook and you just looked at the financials, you would not know what is going on with Facebook. The business, Nick, has never been stronger. Now, as to what might happen... I Wait, hold on. Before that, before you get to what might happen, is does that yep. mean that because the business has never been stronger, does that mean that that people like Mark and Cheryl are disincentivized to actually fix things because that's the only reason they would want to fix it? They're disincentivized. Delay and obfuscation is the primary means of ensuring that they become the wealthiest people in the world. Which, as far as I can tell, based on everything they've ever done, is their only objective. It's power and it's money. Full stop. So, you know, just as the NRA was unable to connect the sale of assault weapons with the murder of children and tobacco executives were unable to connect the addictive qualities of tobacco with their product, these guys are never going to figure out that they're doing anything wrong. And to a certain extent, they're doing their job. Who has really failed us is, is the man in the mirror. And that is we have failed to elect representatives who have the skills, the domain expertise and the will to take on the 88 full-time lobbyists that Amazon has in D.C., and or, or Facebook, which has become sort of this 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 force that we can't seem to get our arms around. And we bought into this narrative that it would be impossible for them to police their content. What utter bullshit. What it would be is unprofitable or less yeah. profitable for them to police their content. And when they use the word un, impossible, what they really mean is unprofitable. But to your point of what could or should or what I believe might happen— I don't believe the world is what it is. I believe the world is what we make of it. And I think that the war against big tech is breaking out in Europe. Marguerite Vestier, who ran the EU Competitiveness Commission, is a viable candidate to head the EU, EU parliament. If she's in there, that is real trouble for big tech. And in addition, it is very simple what needs to be done here. Every fine needs to have a zero added to it. The, fa the FTC fine against the Facebook should have been 30 to 50 billion, not three to five billion. Because I put a parking lot in front of your house that costs 100 bucks every 15 minutes, and the parking ticket is 25 cents, you, Nick, are going to break the law. And that's what we are telling these companies to do is break the law. And then what we need, and some candidates, mostly Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, but I also believe Senator Bennett would be a viable, uh, uh, has bought into this. And that is the key here, the answer, is competition. Because the reason their bus businesses continue to thrive is they're effectively monopolies and duopolies. We need to oxygenate the economy and break these guys up. Okay, so you just mentioned in Europe you have someone who is a completely anti, and I completely agree with you, 1,000 billion trillion percent that we need to break these companies up. Um, I think that they have... I've been covering Facebook for as long as Facebook's been Facebook, and there's never been a point in time there that hasn't been some sort of scandal, and they just make it through it. And, and a five billion dollar fine, like you said, would be like you finding a, you know, losing a nickel between your couch cushions. Um, 
But you have a, a, a story this week where Facebook, uh, Mark and Cheryl have both said that they're, they're, they're going to defy going to Canada to testify in front of Congressional Congress. Uh, Mark has not been forthcoming with the EU. You have all these things that are happening. How does, how does that play out? Do these, do these governments just ignore these requests once they, get the, they fail to respond to them? Or do they say to them, okay, well, we're going to create new rules that will make it harder for you to operate within our country in the way that you do, and then that maybe will fix it in America? Or is Facebook just too powerful? So I love predictions. And one of the predictions I said earlier is that I believe uh, Facebook's going to hit 250 bucks a share this year. Another prediction for the next 12 months, I think a senior level Facebook executive will be arrested and detained, but it'll happen on foreign soil. We now have the CEO of an American company that I think is the fifth or sixth most valuable company in the world, who literally probably can't fly through British airspace as he would be escorted down if they knew he was on that plane by fighter jets by you know RAF tornadoes and probably arrested. So that's where we are. And because they get cloud cover from this shit show, you know, dumpster fire that is the Trump administration, people aren't quite quite as worried. But what we have here is I mean another key step. Uh, I was at the genocide memorial in Kigali, Rwanda. Another key step to genocide which as a species we're very good at. People always point to our greatest hits in the middle of the 20th century, but we seem to perform genocide on a regular basis as a species. And one of the key steps to genocide is having taking control of a consolidated communications uh, backbone for propaganda. And we are in the midst of letting one individual who cannot be removed from office, who is, in my opinion, has demonstrated that he is basically a broken sociopath, we are about to give him power over 2.7 billion people and the communications they will receive will be encrypted. And the only thing, there will be one individual who decides the algorithm for deciding what content those 2.7 billion people see. We were all freaked out. The DOJ and attorney generals across America didn't want to let T-Mobile and Sprint merge because it was going to bring together 130 million people under one communications umbrella. Oh my God, call, you know, hold the phone, call the DOJ. But we're about to let 2.7 billion people be under the umbrella of a guy who screwed over his best friends in college and royally fucked over his best friend. And his first website was a website evaluating women on their physical appearance. What could go wrong? And he can't be fired and he can't be removed. And they're making these false, hollow arguments now. And Sheryl Sandberg, again, paid to lie and paid a lot of money and sacrificed her reputation is making two arguments. One. The Chinese are coming for us. This was the same argument that 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 um, companies trying to defend from Japanese takeovers takeovers in the '80s made. That that the J Japanese were trying to do it to us economically, what they couldn't do to us militarily in World War II, and so they created this nationalist fear. The notion that Facebook or that the way to counter Chinese companies wouldn't be better served with multiple smaller companies that are more innovative is ridiculous. And the notion that we need a company of this scale to solve these problems, well, the scale has not only not solved these problems, it's been the ultimate prophylactic against actually addressing these problems. So more lies, more delay and obfuscation. It is time for our government to grow some sack and go go after these guys. We have a long, proud history of antitrust. We broke up the railroads. By the way, that was a Republican. We broke up the telephone companies. We broke up aluminum. We can absolutely do this, Nick. It is time to break this shit up. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Totally agree with you. I, I, I admire your passion around this, and I hope that... Uh, I hope that you're right in your prediction. I hope that um, I, you know, I just I think that it's it's infuriating to just watch a uh, company and its uh, leadership get away with what they get away with without any uh, consequence. And um, you know, all I can say is is clap and ditto and and completely agree. So there's that on Facebook. Um, all right, let's move on to Uber. Um, so. Yeah. One thing that I find so fascinating about Uber is that, uh, and you've written about this and talked about this, um, is that, you know, the company valuation in billions versus uh, when it went public versus what it is today. Uh, and then when you look at uh, a more uh, even keeled company valuation like Ford, 
um, or another car company where it's kind of exactly what it should be back then and now. Um, is Uber in trouble, do you think? I mean, they were originally valued at around $120 billion. They went public, of course, at a lot less than that. But now their stock's yeah. down. I think the valuation is, is in the high 60s. Um, you know, uh, Lyft is the same thing. Their stock has fallen quite a bit. Um, do, do you think that these companies are still drastically overvalued? And as a result, uh, there's, a, a, there's a long way for them to go down? Or can they kind of fix their business model in a way that will make them uh, viable as the future of car companies? So there's two things. There's valuation and then there's the role that ride hailing plays in our society. So let's talk about valuation. Uh, If you read the prospectus, and I actually read these things for the IPO for Lyft, they basically position themselves as warriors for humanity. You know, statements like good things happen to good people when they do great things, right? They talk about Network, they use the term network effect uh, two dozen times in the prospectus. They talk about autonomous driving. There is no network effect. There's scale in ride hailing, but there really isn't a network effect like you find with Facebook or Google. They have negative EBITDA margins. This is a company that lost, I think, a billion dollars on three, two or three billion in revenue. So when you take a $15 Uber, it's costing them 20 bucks. So it would be irresponsible for the Biltons to do anything but take Uber all the time <laughs> or Lyft. But this company, it has competitors. There are very few moats. There aren't the moats of an Airbnb where you not only have to have local demand, but you have to have global supply. With ride-hailing, you just need local demand and local supply. So you can start a viable ride-hailing company in any city for tens of millions, whereas to start to replicate Airbnb would take hundreds of millions. So uh, Lyft is a bad business with no flywheel effects. It has not spun out any different businesses. It either gets acquired or it declines 80 to 90%. It's kind of the blue apron of 2019. It just makes no sense as a business. But, Uber, but wait, isn't there, isn't, before you jump to, just run to Lyft real quick, yep. but Lyft's, Lyft's user base rose when Uber went through its massive challenges around sure. Travis Kalanick and so on. Isn't there a world where something could go wrong at Uber again and, and Lyft could actually be a good investment? Yeah, but, you know, counting on the CEO being a total frat bro is not a good strategy, right? And <laughs> okay. counting, hoping that the other company screws up is not, you know, that was an existential crisis for about 72 hours. It, it doesn't, consumers talk a big game about caring how their company behaves, and then they want that little black dress for nine ninety nine, which means there are people making less than minimum wage with no dignity as workers. Every time you buy a dress for nine ninety nine, you know, you just know that there's, <laughs> there is not an ethical supply chain there. It's physically impossible. So consumers talk a big game about CSR, and then they buy the best product at the best price for the most part. So Lyft, Lyft in my opinion, declines dramatically and either gets acquired or is off 90% in the next 36 months. Uber is a much better business. Uber has is an unbelievable global brand. It's probably the first and the last brand that global affluent interact with when they're abroad. So if I'm in London or if I'm going to the um, Cannes Creativity Festival, the first and last brand I interact with is Uber. So it has tremendous power. It has good technology, great interface. And they have demonstrated this all-valuable flywheel effect, and that is they spun out Uber Eats, and Uber Eats is a great business. Now, there's competitors there, but it is a great business. So Uber has shown an ability that Lyft doesn't have. It has global scale, a better brand, better technology, and in fact, it has a flywheel effect. Now, is it worth more than Ford and BMW, which approximately combined have the same market cap as Uber? No. Uber could execute to perfection and be worth half of what it is right now. So it is a terrible invest- investment. So valuation... Lyft, disaster. Sometimes it's darkest before it's pitch black, and it is about to get pitch black for investors at Lyft. (laughs) Uber, a bad investment, but it's not going to zero. And now let's talk about ride hailing and society. Ride hailing is the tobacco of the gig economy, because what we have legitimized here, what we have approved with the new lipstick on cancer, Dara Kasrashawi, who is a very likable guy, is we have figured out a way, Nick, to sequester the 22,000 full-time employees in San Francisco at Uber, the nice, mostly white, mostly college-educated people, and they get to split the value of Ford and BMW combined with their mostly white, mostly college-educated investors, and they figured out a way 
to take this jagged little pill and shove it down our throats were 4.1 million mostly non-white, mostly non-college educated workers who really have built this company who make less than minimum wage on a regular basis, who have no health care, who have yeah. no basic protection. Their car is effectively a payday loan when you take into account what they're doing in terms of driving down uh, the, the useful life of the car and the maintenance to support that car. And and Lyft decides, okay, we're going to give them something. We're going to give them $1,000 if they had 10,000 rides. So that's, that's the equivalent of two ridiculously yuck, young lucky young and very talented 30-somethings in the backseat who became billionaires throwing a dime at the head of every Lyft driver for every ride. This is this is literally what I think of of Uber's IPO. I called it the Lord's Take Revenge on the Surf's IPO. We have validated, we have, we have said we're comfortable with, we have legitimized the notion that we in this country are headed towards a nation of three million lords served by 350 million serfs. When you started on the floor of General Motors in the 70s, you made 27 bucks an hour before inflation. Now drivers at Lyft and Uber are making nine bucks an hour. And these companies, Ford and BMW, 330,000 employees, almost all of them with health insurance, average age 27 bucks. When a baby is born to an employee, that baby comes out of the womb insured. And what do we have? We have 4.1 million people working for Uber. They can't find a place to pee when they're driving in New York because they're working 14-hour days. This is this is a this is literally uh, a, a, such a negative, uh, you know, a negative statement on where we have ended up and what we are comfortable with as an economy. But how does it change? Does it change? I mean, is there anything to make this? You know, we were talking about this last year. Um, does anything change in this result? Well, I think we need stronger labor laws. I, I just don't see why. I, I also, I think we need a new gestalt. Henry Ford decided that it was short-term thinking not to pay his people five bucks an hour when there was a line around the block at two bucks an hour. Because he said, if they can't afford the car, and we can't, if we can't maintain the greatest source of good in human history, which is capitalism combined with America's middle class that turned back AIDS and arrested Hitler— that that is literally a short term bet. That we are just you know we are really we're making our own you know we're 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 building our own coffin. And it seemed like in in the past we understood that through minimum wage, uh, through certain employee protection, that we were comfortable reinvesting in the middle class. And it feels like we've said you know what, America has fallen out of the unremarkables. And that is, you grew up in L.A. I went to UCLA. I was an unremarkable student, but the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the regents of UC gave me an amazing education, even though I was unremarkable at a low cost, such that I could have remarkable opportunities and I could come on this podcast with you. And we, our goal as a society until I think the 90s and the introduction of these kind of mega billionaires was to create millions of millionaires. Play by the rules, work hard, get credentialed, and you could have a million bucks by the time you retired. Now it appears with our tax policy, our our idolization, our idolatry of technology billionaires, that we have a new goal. And our new goal is to crown the first trillionaire. And it's gotten to the point where it's just so obvious that the middle class is really hurting. And basic things, whether it's raising minimum wage, basic things that you should not be able to reap these types of capital gains without distributing it among the workforce, you should pay a higher tax rate, is just outrageous. You know who the mother of all welfare queens is right now? Mother of all welfare queens. In the 80s, Reagan had this basically racist whistle call where he had this image of a black woman taking advantage of welfare payments and food stamps, taking advantage of the government. We have a $20 trillion economy, $5 trillion tax base, you know, $600 billion goes to the military, a couple trillion dollars to Social Security, one and a half to Medicare, whatever it might be. You know who is sucking money out of our pockets and is the mother of all welfare queens? The wealthiest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. And how does he do it? He never sells his stock, so he never triggers a capital gain. He borrows against his stock from J.P. Morgan at 1.9% and just keeps rolling that loan and gets 17% in his pocket of every subsidies, which amount to billions of dollars of these towns and cities who are so horny for jobs and cannot resist the idea of detonating a prosperity bomb in town square because of our short-term election cycle. If you were to add up the subsidies that Jeff Bezos has pocketed personally, and then take the amount of taxes he's paid, you would find that Jeff Bezos is, in fact, 
the mother of all welfare queens. And my question is, Alexa, is this a good thing? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think it's a good thing. I think Alexa would probably agree with you, agree on that if she was allowed to have a, a viewpoint on anything. Um, That's right. All right, so, so last company, uh, a perfect segue. Uh, let's talk about um, uh, none other than Amazon. Uh, Amazon yep. seems like... You know, Jeff is Jeff is uh, probably the smartest of them all, in my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, having met all of these founders and and covered them for so long, but he is also um, he's also kind of he's not. Look, I think Mark Zuckerberg is kind of a snot when it comes to a lot of these issues. He's like, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to. And and whereas Jeff, um, I think, uh, is a little smarter in the way he responds to things or doesn't respond to them and how he does and so on. And one thing that I have heard is kind of a, of a rumor just floating around, and I don't know how true this is or anything, but that there is a world in which um, Bezos, rather than risk being broken up, would actually break up Amazon on his own with still still retaining some ownership of, of all of the parts. And and the idea would be that something like AWS could be spun out the, the, uh, the, the server's business because it's grown so dramatically. Do you think that Jeff would do that? And do you think that that it, does that scare you more than if the government were to break him up or he would just stay the size he is as a current uh, a huge company that they are? Yeah, so a lot there. And um, look, if I was to write a sequel to The Four, it would be called The One and it would just be all about Amazon. I don't mm -hmm. think we've ever had a company firing on all 12,000 cylinders the way Amazon, Amazon is right now. So who's the most innovative technology hardware company? Oh, Apple. Well, is it? Is it? I think the baton has been passed off. The most transformative technology for the next 20 years, in my view, the same way that Apple reshuffled trillions of dollars in stakeholder value with the iPhone, I think the most transformative technology device right now is Amazon's Echo device. This, I think voice really is transformative. We've been communicating with screens for 30 years. We've been communicating with words for hundreds. We've been communicating with sounds and voice for millions of years. It's just intuitive. It takes over your household. It'll be the interface for everything. And it kind of signals the death of the brand era because things like packaging, pricing, shelf placement, eye level all go away when you just have a voice telling you to order Amazon basic elements batteries, even though Energizer and Duracell are available, but you don't see them. So you have the most innovative technology hardware company. You have a company, the most valuable channel in the world is US e-commerce in terms of market capitalization. You have one company that controls 50% of that. If any telco or cable company gets over 25%, we literally seat regulators at headquarters to review all pricing and product decisions, but not Amazon. 50% of e-commerce, we're okay with that. They go into adjacent, the fastest, most pro, the fastest growing, most profitable uh, segment in technology right now is the cloud. Who's the number one there? Oh, Amazon. Well, what about original scripted television? Who's the number one spender on original scripted television? Netflix. Okay. Why are they number one? Because they heard the number two's footsteps behind them. Amazon, who will spend $7 billion on original scripted television. Amazon will spend more on original scripted television this year than I think the entire TV industry did during the entire decade of the 80s. And they can do this because we have never had this agreement or this construct between investors and shareholders and the government uh, where a company has been allowed to break even this long. So if you and I were in a boxing ring and I got 100% pure oxygen and you got somewhere between 70 and 94, which is what most companies get because they have to give their investors profits, eventually I would win. Eventually, even you might be you're younger than me, you're 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 buffer than me, you're a more skilled boxer. Doesn't matter. I'm getting 100% pure oxygen. I'm going to win. Everyone says Amazon's so innovative, and they are. But if you told the majority of companies in America that they could break even for 20 to 30 years with infinite amounts of capex and not need to be profitable, they could be remarkably innovative. And we've never seen this happen in our modern economy before. So Amazon has become the invasive species that can go into any category and disrupt it. It's more really of a disruption platform now than it is an e-commerce company. And the next, my prediction, a couple predictions, and you hit on one, I think is prophylactically going to spin AWS as a means of staving the wolves off the wolves from the door. And on the spin, AWS will be one of the 10 most valuable uh, companies in the world. And then Amazon will get to $2 trillion in value on the backs of their entry into healthcare. 
which has become the most disruptable business in the world. In terms of margin dollars, you pay outrageous insurance, 45% of that fee goes to administration and profitability. Amazon's, you know, the healthcare industry's profits and administrative wastes are Jeff Bezos' opportunity. He is going to come for healthcare. And the weird thing is, he's not even really going to need to do that much in healthcare before he starts to grab their market capitalization. Buys PillPack, a $110 million online pharmaceutical company for $1.1 billion. The retail pharmacy business sheds $11 billion. Puts out a press release saying we're looking at healthcare with J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway. We don't know if that's memberships to Equinox. We don't know if they're opening a hospital. And boom, on the opening bell the next morning, the healthcare industry cedes $31 billion in value to Amazon. So healthcare, here comes the fist of, the fist of stone known as Amazon. And do you worry? Do, do you think that Apple can? I mean, Apple, of course, is going into the healthcare business too, which is a multi-trillion-dollar business. Do you think Apple can beat them to it, or is Amazon too too big and too powerful and too good? So, if you did a survey, most people would be betting on Apple. So, all of big tech is eyeing. All of big tech has their greed glands going on around healthcare. Healthcare, you know, prices have risen faster than inflation. Uh, at a greater clip than any other industry, yet only one in six people are satisfied with their health care. I mean, this is literally the mother of all chins being stuck out, waiting to get clocked. So they're all looking at it. And let's talk about who can't do it. Facebook. No one is going to tell Facebook they have diabetes or an STD. Two, uh, Google. Google has a tremendous culture, the capital, incredible IQ, but most of their health care has been sort of CSR, things like let's cure death. They don't seem to have... Uh, what I would call a real viable strategy yet, or I don't know, I, I just, I wouldn't, you never count Google out, greatest concentration of IQ in history, but not, it doesn't feel as, it's not an obvious strategy or path for them. Apple is the one everyone's betting on. They have a device in the watch that can garner some uh, accurate information or had they sort of already have an entree into your physical data. However, Apple is cursed with something, and that is it's cursed with a shareholder base that like a crack addict is addicted to the profits or the crack cocaine of profits. And the primary asset that Amazon will bring to this that they've brought to every other category is a shareholder base that is willing to hemorrhage billions of dollars and also an ability to sit on top of a data set and discern the good from the bad businesses. So batteries, great business. Every, all batteries worldwide are produced in yeah. three factories in China. We put our brand on it, 70% margins. We love that business. Swiss vacuum cleaners, shitty, difficult business. We'll just sell them on our platform and take 8 to 12% of top-line revenue. Amazon can sit on the enormous data set, which is probably the biggest data set in the world, of U.S. healthcare and say, all right, we know your body mass index. We know the food you have, your demographics, whether you're in a relationship, and we can actuarially figure out how healthy you are and then offer you certain services, private label, and then outsource the shitty businesses like pediatrics to other people who will just charge a fee. And with an Amazon show in your living room, they'll be able to offer, I think, preliminary diagnostics. One day you're going to walk in, your Alexa is going to offer you insurance for 50% of the price, and you're going to say, tell me more, Alexa. And the entire healthcare industry is going to begin vomiting billions of dollars to Seattle. <laughs> Give away with words. It's coming, Scott. Nick. <laughs> um, all right. Well, this has been depressing. I mean, we started off on a good foot. Do you want to? Is there anything you want to end on a good note with? Uh, any um, any yeah. any upside here to the happiness? If you could, if okay, here you go. I've got a question for you. Sure. If you could, um, uh, if you could give your book to uh, to one CEO, we've talked about uh, Bezos, Zuckerberg. Uh, any of these guys just with the hopes that they would read it, who would it be? Oh, look, I would just give it to someone with kids. The book was written. Uh, I want it to be a moment of reflection to realize how and wonderful and how blessed we are. of reflection. Oh, I doubt that. But um, no, I, I do think, look, it goes back to what I said earlier, Nick. And again, I, I, you know, I do hate my life less and less every day. I, do, I am a, actually a hopeful person. I don't think the world is what it is. We've gotten to this point of complacency where we've sort of thrown up our arms. The world is what we make of it. We need to elect officials who are going to hold these companies to the same standards we've held every other company. We can absolutely break these guys up. We can oxygenate the economy. We can maintain unbelievable innovation in this country. It's just whether or not we have the will to do it. I think it's coming. I am actually very hopeful. I think you've brought a lot of oxygen to this issue. You're writing about it consistently. 
Uh, and I think it's important that we're fearless and that we're out there and that we're unapologetic and we don't buy into this narrative that just because they're billionaires and just because they have 600 PR people working for them, that we should opt into their narrative, that if we don't love big tech, it means there's something wrong with us. No, it means there's something right with us. All right. Well, I uh, I like the inspirational overtones there. Uh, we should end on this good note. Um, Scott, thank you so much. This is always an amazing opportunity to have a conversation with you about all these different topics that you know so well. Uh, and everyone should read the book. And um, and good luck, uh, good luck selling a million copies so that you can retire and be happy. There you go, Nick. I'll see you in New Mexico, boss. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We're there with the alpacas or whatever it is they have down there. Don't bring your own crystals. I'll have plenty of them. That sounds good. Congrats on your success, Nick. Thanks, you too. Thanks to my guest today, Scott Galloway. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the High with Nick Bilton. There are now over 100 for you to listen to. You can find all of these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a beautiful 17-star review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor this week, Robin Hood. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.